Our primary reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? And the Lord God said, It is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called the living creature, that was his name. And the human called names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the heavens and all the beasts of the field. But for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. And the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. And the human said, this one at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman For from man was this one taken. Therefore, does a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I'm very glad to be with you all today as Parkside continues its sermon series on the book of Genesis. This is my second time with y'all. Just in case, my name is Alex. I am a local Presbyterian. I serve as a chaplain at Roper and St. Francis Hospitals. And I'm glad to be with you. In today's text, we learn about God creating the first woman. Before we get started, I'd like to say a thank you to Pastor Colin, wherever he is, there you are, for inviting me to preach today, and also a special thank you for giving me a text that is totally impossible to sum up in 20 minutes or less. Thank you so much. We're going to give it a try, but before we dive into the text today, I'm reminded of a few things Pastor Colin spoke to last Sunday. First of all, There are two origin stories in the book of Genesis, and they differ in content and in form. Why is this important to highlight, especially for folks who, like me, thought for a long time that there was just one story? These two origin stories show us that the Bible is multi-vocal, meaning the Bible speaks in more than one voice. In other words, in the Bible, we hear God speaking through humans, And we also hear humans speaking about God. Humans with all their foibles, frailties, strengths, and weaknesses. Which means the Bible is not univocal. It's not just God's voice speaking throughout the text, but instead God's voice woven in with human voices to create a shared narrative. In Genesis 1, we learn of God's creative work over seven cosmic days. 
And in Genesis 2, we learn of God's creative and relational work in the Garden of Eden, where we first meet the first man and the first woman. Once again, scholars believe this second creation story stemmed from something called the Yahwehist group and the first from the priestly. These two groups represent different theological camps of thought, but each worshiping the same God and in the same faith, but from different perspectives. Hebrew scholars knew, y'all, that these differences and contradictions existed within the text, and all the same, they put them side by side. Why? Because, as Pastor Collins spoke to last week, each creation story shows us complementary truths about the nature and character of God. Each creation story also shows us complementary truths about the nature and character of God's creation, including us humans. So these stories are therefore meant not to be taken literally, but figuratively. They are here to teach us about the nature and character of God. In this first story in Genesis 1, we learn of the grand majesty of God, manifested in God's creative power over those seven cosmic days. And in Genesis 2, we meet a more personal and relational God who wishes to not only be in relationship with God's creation, but for creation to live and flourish in mutual, equitable relationship. Before we meet the first woman, let's zoom out and take a brief look at historical interpretations over time about this first woman. Dr. Pamela Milne, a feminist scholar and advocate for gender equality, wrote in a 1989 Washington Post op-ed that the story of Eve, the first woman, in the book of Genesis has had a more profoundly negative impact on women throughout history than any other biblical story. And I would add here that misinterpretations of the story of Eve have had a profoundly negative impact on women. And we'll dive into those misinterpretations here shortly. Dr. Milne goes on to write that the story of this first woman for at least 2,000 years has been interpreted in patriarchal and even misogynist ways by male biblical scholars and theologians in such a way that early Christian writers depicted Eve as subordinate and inferior to Adam. Couple examples here. Fourth century Bishop Ambrose refers to the first woman as created solely to birth babies, to be a helper for the purpose of generating human nature. And Ambrose concluded that then this is the way in which a woman is meant to be a good helper of lesser importance. Not much better. 13th century priest and theologian Thomas Aquinas argued that women were defective by nature and therefore inferior to men. And again, not much better moving forward in time, 17th century poet John Milton in his epic poem Paradise Lost wrote that Adam admired Eve solely for her beauty and submissive charms. I could go on, but big picture, what do these texts have in common? Well, for starters, they were all written by men. All reflected the societal norms of their time their eaves mirrored the ideal women of their time, one who was demure and submissive and ornamental. 
And what contributed to this ideal, to these depictions of women, misinterpretations of today's text in no small part. According to biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, she was writing in the mid-20th century, the Bible in its multivocal reality, again, God speaking through humans and humans speaking about God, reflects the deeply ingrained patriarchal structures in ancient Israel. And following the Bible in its multivocal reality reflects the ways in which humanity deviated after the fall from God's original plan for us. And more on the fall next week. Stay tuned. Do not miss. So how does today's text, y'all, show us what God did intend for the first woman, for women today? In the song she and her brother wrote for the smash hit movie Barbie, Billie Eilish asks, what was I made for? What was I made for? Singing as Barbie, she poses this existential question, but really this song and the movie at large asks a deeper question, a question we Christians are invited and I think urged to consider in light of today's text. What were women made for? In interviews about the movie, director and co-writer Greta Gerwig spoke about Barbie Land as a reimagined Garden of Eden, a reimagined creation story. In this Garden of Eden, Barbie and Ken are our Adam and Eve figures, and Barbie reigns supreme. Barbie is president, an astronaut, a doctor, a Nobel Prize winning writer. But no matter her profession, Barbie is confident lacking in shame, not self-conscious. She is capable, she is kind. And Ken, for those of y'all who've seen the movie, is beach, whatever that means. I'm beach, beach is my job. He's ornamental and he's lacking in purpose and all he wants is for Barbie just to notice him just for a second and he feels lucky if he gets an invite to the dream party at her mansion. He is at loose ends in this Barbie-led paradise. And there's no question, Barbie runs the show. And Ken is just along for the ride. In a twist, and I think Greta Gerwig is so brilliant, Ken's experience in Barbie land mirrors women's experience in the real world. Without spoiling too much for folks who haven't seen the movie, Hijinks ensue and Barbie and Ken realize that both modes of living, the Barbiearchy and the patriarchy, are unfair and each diminish their potential. Let's leave Barbie land for a moment and let's go ahead and dive into the biblical Garden of Eden in today's text, Genesis 2, beginning with verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. I appreciate Alter here, y'all, our translator today, who translates the Hebrew neged, which means beside. As in God decides in this story to make a sustainer to live beside the first man, not below, not beneath, which might suggest the first woman held an inferior status, but face to face as equals. For the extroverts amongst us, rejoice because God doesn't mean for us to be alone. God wishes for us to be with others and in good company. 
If the isolation of the COVID-19 pandemic taught me anything, and I am an introvert, it's that we need good company. And sometimes for me, that need manifested in a quiet walk, communing with birds and trees, and other times, socially distanced potlucks with friends outside. We are not meant to be alone. So what did God do? In verses 19 and 20, we learn that God creates creatures, and the first man names them. But God does not yet see a fitting sustainer to place beside the human as that equal. So in verses 21 and 23, we learn that the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. Pause here. How many of you, like me, thought that men had one less rib for like a long time? Raise your hands. Okay. Definitely me. I actually Googled it, and it turns out we all have the same number of ribs, y'all. There is no differential there. And I think this is an important detail. Again, this story is not meant to be taken literally, but figuratively. This story is meant to share and teach us about the first man and the first woman sharing in the same human nature, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We are connected And let's pause here for a moment and dive into that word sustainer because it has caused a heck of a lot of trouble down the centuries. Today's translation by Alter uses that word sustainer, which translates in the Hebrew to helper. What do you all think of when you hear that word helper? Do you imagine a particular profession, maybe a firefighter or a medic, or perhaps do you imagine a man or do you imagine a woman? when you hear that word, helper. For our friends Ambrose and Aquinas and Milton, in this verse, they imagined a helper as a subservient female. And y'all, unfortunately, that stuck. What's more, Ezer, helper in Hebrew, and its translations have supported what's called a complementarian theology. And by complementarian, I mean a theology that posits God created woman for the sole purpose of serving and fulfilling men. That women are designed by God to be subservient. And the irony and the troubling thing about this theology is that it's not a good nor a faithful reading of this text. To place today's text in appearance of this word ezer, helper, or sustainer in context let's consider other places in scripture where it actually appears. For instance, in Exodus 18, verse four, Moses' son, Eliezer, speaks of God as his Ezer, his helper. My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. As in God served as a helper who rescued, saved, and delivered Eliezer and his fellow Israelites from oppression in the land of Egypt. Another example in Deuteronomy 33 verse 7, we hear God's people calling upon God to be a helper in time of great need. And in Psalm 33 verse 20, the psalmist declares of God, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Looking at the scripture, the word Ezer 
only appears in the rest of the Hebrew Bible in reference to God. This is not to say that the first woman is God or that she holds the same majestic power as God. Rather, God is our ultimate helper. As we hear in Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. But rather, God designed this first woman to reflect and mirror God's helping power. Biblical scholar Dr. Robert Miller explains it like this. The first woman is an ezer or a helper in the same way that a medic is an ezer in a crisis or an emergency. Y'all remember Mr. Rogers saying, in a crisis, look for the helpers? This is the kind of help he's talking about. This is the kind of person who has a cool head in the midst of a crisis or someone who stands up in the face of injustice to help others, someone who liberates rather than oppresses. That is the kind of helper we are talking about and that, my friends, is what the first woman was made for. That's what she has capacity for. What happens then when we fail to recognize the image of God and her giftedness in this first woman. And women today, when we diminish women's God-given gifts. For, again, biblical and feminist scholar Phyllis Tribble, any form of oppression or diminishment of another human being dishonors the image of God in that person. And therefore, any kind of oppression or diminishment of another human being is a form of sin. And by sin, I mean that it dishonors God's wishes for us and the way that God would have us live so that we flourish and thrive rather than destroy one another. Asserting superiority over any other human being, whether it's men over women, white folks over people of color, straight folks over LGBTQIA people, dishonors God's intentions for humankind, the intention for us to be equals. And it's a call for a kind of repentance, and by repentance I mean a way back to God's original intentions for us, which is equality, mutual respect, and flourishing. To quote Joni Mitchell in her beautiful song, Woodstock, we are stardust, y'all. We are golden, each and every one of us, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden back to this Garden of Eden when God created this first woman to stand beside the first man as an equal, capable of helping in the midst of a crisis. How do we find our way back? How do we look back and think, Lord, there have been centuries of discrimination against women? But imagine if someone like Ambrose who had power and influence in the early church, had faithfully interpreted this text to honor God's intentions for us to be equals rather than subservient. Imagine if Ambrose had approached this text without any pre-existing biases and read it with an open mind and an open heart 
what would the world look like now? And I wonder too, dear people, how has this theology impacted you? I know it's impacted me sitting with this text all week. How has this theology, this complementarian theology, seeped into your own life and mindset? And I wonder if it continues to hold you back. And if it does, you're not alone. How can we here at Parkside and beyond live from the truth that God intended for us to be equal, to recognize our God-given gifts, to see the image of God in one another? How can we every day foster that kind of true equality and respect? We have our ideal right here in Genesis 2. We look to the character and nature of God and the ways in which we each, as image bearers of God, men and women and people across the gender spectrum, and the ways in which we are called to care for God's world and one another. We remember that God did not wish for us to be alone. We return to the truth that God intended for men and women to work alongside and beside one another as equals, and we reflect on the ways in which poor, frankly, bad readings of this text and bad theology continue to undermine us as men and women. For arguably, this reading doesn't serve men either. When men oppress women, they dishonor the image of God within themselves. For it's not in God's nature to oppress, but to liberate, to set free. Another way to get back to this Garden of Eden is to let go of our shame. We hear in verse 25 that the two of them, the first man and the first woman, were naked. And they were not ashamed because in this Garden of Eden paradise before the fall, there was no shame. It wasn't even available as a thought. Instead, God created conditions for mutual flourishing and connection. God called the first man and the first woman very good. It's the only very good I think that's used. You, my friends, are fearfully and wonderfully made. And shame is an emotion that makes us feel alone. It isolates us, makes us feel unworthy and inadequate. And instead of encouraging connection, shame destroys it. And that, y'all, is not God's plan for us. God wishes to connect us. And shame can also be used to oppress other people. It can be a tool to oppress This is also not God's wish for us. So friends, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us remember the good news that Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection willingly took on our shame loved us not in spite of, but with all our foibles and weaknesses, embarrassments and mistakes, let us continue to ask our ultimate Ezer, our ultimate helper, our God to take that shame from us just as Jesus did on the cross. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what were we made for? We, my friends, were made to live in harmony with one another, to rejoice in and reflect back God's image to each other and to the world. We were meant to help, encourage, and sustain and empower each other. We were meant to be free from shame. We were made for love. That's what we were made for. So I invite us right here and right now to think about cultivating a garden of Eden to make it new with God's help to live in the truth that God gives us about who we are, who we were made to be. In the name of God, the Father and the Mother, his Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we actually, my community group, we had a discussion because for those of you that don't know, uh, today is the 20th anniversary of the Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake <laughs> halftime performance. And we had a discussion okay. about that and how um, women's, you know, how we've changed throughout the years since then, because it's 20 years, which makes me feel real old. But... Based off of kind of that conversation and then also your amazing sermon today, Alex, thank you for that message. Um, how do we navigate the matrix of being proud of our bodies and not hiding them, feeling like our worth is in our bodies and beauty and thus we must show them off, and being ashamed of our bodies and hiding them because we don't want to cause men to sin? That's a good question. It's a multi-part question too. And I love the use of the word matrix because I think so much in that question is interconnected between the ways that the Bible has been read and interpreted over time and the ways that culture influences the ways that we live. So I think in answer to that question, thinking about the scripture from today, I'm reminded again that there was no shame in the Garden of Eden. We don't really know anything about the first woman and the first man's bodies except that they had them. So they're not necessarily described, right? But they weren't ashamed of those bodies. I think too of the psalm, I think it was in your call to worship last week about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God designed in that way. So culturally, there are so many pressures on women. And I think of that fantastic monologue um, in the Barbie movie where it's like women can't do anything right. Like either you're too loud or you're too quiet or you dress too kind of provocatively or you're a nun. I mean, it's just so hard in this culture. I think my kind of hope in rather than maybe an answer to that question, because I don't know if there are clear-cut answers here, is I think God designed us intentionally, right? Like, God gave us a body. We're not floating souls. We're not amoebas floating around with no body. We are meant to exist in time, in space. Um, and I've heard um, the stumbling block kind of argument over time as well. Men, y'all may be stumbling blocks too, it, does, it goes both ways, right? Yeah, that gray sweatpants season will get you. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think, no, I love it. 
having this again, we, we need to bring the conversation back in to both men and women. But yes, I think, I think that we are given these bodies for a reason. And I think we are called to cherish them and to live into them. This is our house here on this planet. You move around, you walk around in this thing, care for it well, love it well. God gave it to you for a reason. Excellent. And we had a lot of questions about this. Since this passage names genders on a binary male and female, will you share more about how we can apply today's message to supporting our transgender non-conforming community? Absolutely. So I so wish that I had had more of a chance to preach to this. Again, it was so hard to think of how do I speak to all of this in 20 minutes or less. <laughs> Excuse me. So going back to Genesis 1 and the, the form of that text, the language in that text, one of my Old Testament professors in divinity school, Dr. Portier Young, talked about the language there of saying men and women rather than a binary in Hebrew, in poetic Hebrew, that actually suggests a spectrum. So it's not just man. And again, we don't know what these bodies look like yet, y'all. We probably have filled in the blanks with our imaginations, but it's a spectrum. So I think to um, kind of like biologically, I don't know how specific we can get given what we see in the text, but I can tell you that in the Hebrew, the way that we can read it, and literary biblical scholars have been saying this too, Hebrew scholars, that that is not a binary, it is a spectrum. That's amazing. And since you're a guest preacher, we're going to end with a softball. <laughs> During the conclusion of her sermon, Alex used the expression, God the Father and Mother. Is this a biblical expression? That's a great question. And in all honesty, too, y'all, I hesitated when I was writing this sermon. Can I end this way? Is this appropriate? Looking at the Bible, though, there is beautiful imagery describing God as a mother, God as a mother bear, God as a mother eagle. So this is in scripture, this description of God. And again, if we think of the creation of the first man and the first woman, they each reflect the image of God. God created men and women across the spectrum, and we reflect God back. We are image bearers. Women can be our mothers. That's reflected in God. So that's how I would answer that question. Thank you so much, Alex. Yeah. You have certainly sustained me today. I'm and so I glad. really appreciate <laughs> you coming. one another. Yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, all the other questions, Colin will address them tomorrow on Facebook. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Pam.